Hello, Eno. Good to see you. Absolutely. Great to see you. Yes, I I hear you've been on break. Yes, yes, bit of a break. (laughs) That may, in fact, be a better word for what we're looking for than retreat. Mm. Absolutely. Um, Mm. Yeah, no, that's how I try to view it. Yeah, it continues, like you say, yeah. Right. Or just uh, well, uh, what we generally mean by that is um, to take a break is almost exactly the same thing as to take a hike in another context or to get away from it all is another context. Then we have words like vacation, which doesn't wind up being quite what we're looking for. And then there's that good old trusty Buddhist word, solitude. (laughs) Or going into solitude. But all of those have that that quality of it. Um, And that it seems like that the word vacation is the one that's the most loaded because a vacation has either the quality of vacating the premises, which is a getting out, or it has to do with you've got to go do something. You got to go travel. You got to check into a fancy hotel. You've got to go to a conference. You know that kind of thing is what a vacation is often for people. But a break. Now that that is. It's what the world needs. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Um, that sometimes I use the analogy of um, because I was raised a bit in that. Um, situation that the you're out in the field picking cotton carrying a big bag trying to catch up with grandpa because you've got a bet with him over who can get this row of cotton picked first and when you get the cotton row picked when you're dead to the end of the row it doesn't even matter whether he won or you won you're just so glad that it's over you can set that bag of cotton down and sit on it especially since you're under the shade of a tree and just relax you know because i've had that experience and i remembered it enough to wait to understand that that is in fact quite a lot of what the Anapanasati practices is to put that cotton pick and cotton bag down <laughs> and sit down on it and relax. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Because that relaxation always has that deep out breath, <sighs> that sigh, that, oh, it's over. And this is exactly how the Buddha refers to it in the sense of that the job that needed to be done has been done. That you're okay as you are. You're not perfect. You're just okay, which is all we really need. I mean, that's good enough. You don't have to be L number one O to be good enough. That that's a rule somebody set up. And so congratulations, you're on break. You broke it. (laughs) (laughs) 
And what a relief it is to be finished with school right now. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's the feeling that uh, practicing on a Panasati gives, that feeling of, oh, gosh. <laughs> and so practice this well, this, uh, this sense of utter relief. So you could, because you can have that now anytime that you uh, know basically that you can do that and how to get yourself into it. I mean, look at the little story that I just told, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I guess it often feels like work to do, like Anapanasati itself. You know, it's easy to make it into work or whatever, and because we're so worked up into that or whatever. But I think this, is like what you were saying, like this having a story aspect of it, I find very helpful in that time. So anyway, you had a question also. Yeah. Um, um, I, uh, I was just wondering about um, about attachment. Um, okay. Specifically, I'd say to uh, relationships, um, and yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I had I had a friend over for like a week, um, and I knew going into it when they left, it was going to be uh, painful. <laughs> you know, I I came into being uh, with a very great. I don't know. In my opinion, like some of the best practice I had had for a long time in terms of not desiring and being consistently uh, aware and all this sort of stuff. And then, you know, as time went on, I, I knew it was going to be a challenge, you know. Uh, Could you put it in the term of that you you miss her when she's gone? <laughs> is, that, is that what we're looking at? Yeah, definitely. Okay, and so you're talking about this feeling of missing her. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, let's look at that from um, a slightly different perspective for a moment, and that is, is that in Thai language, they don't say, I miss you. They say, Kit Tung Kun, which actually translates into, I've been thinking about you. Okay. And that's basically what you've been doing in reality is just thinking about it. But you're thinking about her and feeling bad. <laughs> Instead of just thinking about her. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, the reason that you're thinking about her is because you enjoyed her company. So now you can actually enjoy thinking about her. Instead of thinking that it's her that made you feel good, it was your thoughts about her when you were with her that made you feel good in the first place anyway. So why don't you continue feeling good with the thoughts you have about her because you already know what she looks like. That's good. <laughs> That's pretty powerful. <laughs> That's pretty, 
Yeah. It is so nuts. That's the clinging. Yeah. And that's the part that we do ignorantly, which means that we do it out of instinct. Okay. That in basic, basically what it means is, is that she was doing some first class nurturing with you. She was just really rubbing you right up and you liked that. <laughs> and you missed that when in fact you could do it in several different ways. And one of the ways is, is that you can remind yourself that you really enjoyed it when she was rubbing you up and you can get back into that feeling directly. Or you can work at it even more directly than that and recognize you don't even need her to rub you up. You can do that too. It's called out upon a sati, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and it is stop um, having the rule that you need her to feel good which is the rule that the child is following is so the child feels bad because he can't get what he wants to follow some stupid rule. But wisdom would say, wait a minute, feelings are feelings and we can talk ourselves into it. <clears throat> if we get, a, if we throw the rule out and the rule that you're kind of inherently following at this point is, is that you need her to feel good. And that's not really a rule. That's something that you made up, I guess, or maybe you saw someone else like your own mommy and daddy play that rule out. <laughs> <laughs> it's an old rule of humanity. Uh -huh, totally, totally. And it's based upon ignorance. But humans were really ignorant way back in the past. Why don't we wake up and recognize that many of the rules that we have, that we follow, are actually ridiculous? <laughs> <laughs> Totally, totally. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. And I guess that makes sense because it's like, you know, like you say, friendship is the whole of the Dharma. Yes. And, you know, so I want to be able to appreciate people as much as I can. Um, well, you're not appreciating her when you feel when you're feeling bad because you're actually blaming her for you feeling bad <laughs> and you wanted to put demands on her like come back come back oh no <laughs> so i can feel good because i miss you <laughs> no no i mean i'm i think i'm far enough into practice to know that you know like that that clinging you know is it leads nowhere good it's this is a, a this is a very very typical example of it, so, and you can you can testify how painful it is to miss her, and you were actually talking yourself into feeling bad. <laughs> totally, yeah, yeah. It's it's hilarious. It's it's so it funny. It's, yeah. It's so funny that this is never like never talked about like this, but it is like you know. It's what's happening at a very basic level, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, I don't know, I guess we, it's, I don't know, it's, I guess it's just non-Western, right? I mean, it's just not part of our culture to think about it in this way. Was that, is that I, yeah. I feel so extraordinarily lucky and um, the kind of lucky that rubs off that I have been in the Asian culture long enough to really take a good hard look at these 
questions or these issues and that I picked up the skills in psychology along the way to be able to do that kind of examination and have the language to discuss it in. And so I feel really, really grateful. I mean, I have just been, you know, in the company of giants, literally. And I feel so grateful for them. And so I'm glad that we can pass that along because you're one of the kind of students who can really appreciate this because of the education that you're, you're getting. I really love when I have psychologists and, and um, philosophers as students. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I appreciate it at the time. Uh, like so you had another question aside from that about the attachment. Now that I think that we just, I mean, that what a piece of easy work that was to figure that out <laughs> is that, yeah, it's okay to think about her, but think loving thoughts about her and that how much you do enjoy having her around. Yeah. She's not your mommy. She's not there to take care of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so I guess the other question that I had, um, you know, I I feel like I understand it to an all right degree, but I feel like it's good to return to, because um, I just feel like I don't know. I feel like I've made a lot of progress with it in, in talks that we've had, but mm -hmm. there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of. Uh, how to handle fear and uncertainty of the future, <laughs> which I know is just like, you know, if friendship is all the good well, of the dharma, then that's all the, that's all what it is against or whatever. Has there, has there ever been a time that you remember or recollect where the future has um, ever been un, uncertain or in fact that you knew <laughs> what the future was going to be. <laughs> you know, I will claim I'm, it. I will not claim that, no. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, even card sharps or guys who play the three-card Monty and other things like that, you know, the shell and the peanut um, and all of these kind of games, even they think because they've got the edge or the advantage or they're running the thing and they're setting the rules that they'll be able to get away with it. But they don't always even get away with it. We don't know what the future is going to be. The future is actually quite uncertain. Yeah, totally. All right. So that means that if you're afraid of the unknown and afraid of the uncertain, then you're just going to be uh, walloped with fear left, right, and center. Because it's going to always be the case. <clears throat> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, yeah. <It> <laughs> <laughs> now, now, here's another point is, is that with all of those futures that were uncertain that actually came about into being a president, you survived every one of them happily. And so what you can begin to trust is it doesn't matter what the future throws at you, can you handle it? That's the attitude of the lion. This is what we're actually, the, the part of the practice is, is to gain that confidence that you can handle anything including that you can handle 
recognizing that your face is in the mud and that you can pick yourself up, dust yourself off, or even while you're boogieing down the road, dry out so that you can dust yourself off. That's the confidence that you can get back up and you you can handle it. Ultimately, is is that can we handle dying? Because that's going to happen too. That's one of the things that dogs don't understand. I've actually watched these two dogs that we've got here in the house play with the carcass of another dog, and they don't even have a clue that that's going to happen to them too. <laughs> that's funny. But humans, we know that. We understand death. And many of us work very hard at trying to postpone it, and the working very hard is a death itself. Instead of just relaxing and think, I, I can handle this. And when you get the confidence you can handle anything, that's part of that security where we can nurture the child inside and say, damn boy, it's okay. We got this wired. You can handle this. And these are the kind of then um, wholesome words that we would use in those points in time when fear does arise because we've dreamt up some dangerous thing that might happen in the future. <gasps> oh no, I've just frightened myself. You know, I just, I just, uh, I'm a film director. I just manufactured my own horror movie. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I found myself doing that uh, this week and just realizing like, wow, this is hilarious. You know, like that is hilarious. Like. It's literally creating like these boogie monsters or whatever, you know, I mean, you know, it's like the same thing you say. It's the same thing we do as children, you know, but now we can just we can come awake to the fact that like we're doing this and it's kind of hilarious. OK, here's a point that might be very interesting to you. And that is, is that <clears throat> it's normally children who have fear in the night because they're sleeping in a different bed or even in a different room than their parents and they have no feeling of security. And so they will dream up things to call mommy and daddy so that they can feel better. And we will invent bears in the closets and, and uh, dragons under the bed and all that kind of stuff as part of our culture. But in Thailand, the child is allowed to sleep in the bed with mom and dad as long as they want to. Even occasionally, our nine-year-old will crawl back in bed with us. But we've got a room that's got two big beds in it, and Mom goes back and forth between the two beds, and sometimes all three of us will wind up in one bed. Okay? But that's because it's okay that Kitty has been able to sleep with us her whole life. And I've been playing games with her about boogeyman and things like that. In fact, the, 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 the standard... Uh, wording that we use is but it always winds up a big hilarious kind of outcome oh, no. all right oh. <clears throat> and so people girls and and boys little kids who are raised that way generally do not have the fear of the unknown and the fear of uncertainty nearly as much as children who have been put it's almost a tail end of the abandonment issue 
the feeling of being abandoned. And if you're abandoned, that means that you will die. It's a life or death situation. <clears throat> like the girlfriend leaving the house yeah, and you get right. upset afterwards. That's actually, technically, that's an abandonment issue. Yeah, that's right. But I didn't want to get all highfalutin and psychological with you right in the beginning. We wanted to solve the problem first. <laughs> and then we bring up these big hammers of <laughs> terminology. <laughs> <and whatnot. laughs> yeah. Yeah, we kind of feel abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> so you can I don't have to ask you, but you can reflect about on upon when you were a child. Did you do did you actually feel abandoned? at any points that you were let down, that they didn't live up to your expectations in some way or another, which can be really real. I mean, some uh, children or babies survive being dumped in a, in a dumpster and abandoned that way. That's the ultimate issue. Or the reverse when, you know, they won't let up, you know. Oh, right, exactly. Then they have the helicopter mom, right? It's a different, it's actually uh, a dirty side of the same shiny coin. <laughs> <laughs> and that is that the child has no capability of, of being able to manage. They're afraid of everything without mommy being there. Funny how we get like that. We wind up in a lose-lose situation regardless of what. <laughs> and you don't do it mindfully. Yeah. Which is, again, that in that case with the child would be a balance. Totally. The middle path. Yeah. That, uh, that we don't push the child away, but we also don't cling to the child when it wants to go off on its own. The Tam used to scream when Kitty would get out to the road because she was afraid she'd go into the road. So I, I asked Kitty, do you know what a road is? Got cars, huh? Have to be careful. It's dangerous out there, right? Okay, Mom, you get that? Kitty knows. You don't have to yell at her. <laughs> and So that's exactly, you're right. That's it, that we do have uh, that that reverse of it. But the, but the clinging that we have is done instinctually. And when we can wake up to that, we can manage it well, as opposed to uh, denying its existence. That this whole idea of denial, I think, is where a lot of Western Buddhist meditation practitioners get. They think that they're overstuffed, and then they deny that they still have it without re-examining it. Sometimes even when somebody's telling them right in their face, <laughs> they still say, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not angry. <laughs> I'm just being loud. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, Western Buddhism is a funny thing, but it's hard, you know, having just no... <laughs> Um, or little to no, I guess, exposure to, like, anything other than Western Buddhism, you know. It's hard to, like, uh, see the comparison. Actually, we could point it this way, that it is, and here's the point that we can say it in very simple way, language. 
for the child to hear. It's okay to screw up. It's okay to screw up. How are you going to ever learn anything if you don't screw up? Because when you're screwing up, you see you're screwing up and you know that you're screwing up and then you see, oh, doing that is a screw up. Therefore, I can avoid doing that. But if we deny that our screw ups are screw ups, because we're not supposed to screw up, we got some rule, you know, <laughs> that we're not supposed to screw up. I mean, they, they, they teach that one really hard in schools. The bullies will always take advantage of it if the teachers don't. And look how many of us go around our whole lives trying to avoid screwing up. When in fact, we already screwed up. So we're actually just going around denying screwing up. Living in a dream fantasy world. Thinking we're something that we're not. So being honest with ourselves requires it's okay. We have to have permission to be a screw up. It's okay you screw up because if you screw up, you can see it. You can recognize, hey man, I don't like screwing up like that. I'm going to stop doing that. The Buddha actually refers to this as the fourth knowledge. The fourth knowledge is that it's really <clears throat> not necessarily okay to screw up. But more in the way that it's stated is that it's not okay to deny it. That's interesting. So would you say that, like, in a way, I guess it's not really comparable, but in a way, Western Buddhism is kind of like in what proto-Buddhism was in the time before the Buddha in India, in that we're kind of like just screwing up or whatever and trying to find our right. hopes. Right, you, right. Enlightenment means you never screw up again, which is exactly as ridiculous as uh, love means you never have to say you're sorry. It's the same thing. It's just a different phrase of the word there. Okay. So because we are screw ups, that's being a human. There is no such thing as perfection. There's just reality. There's dukkha and being no dukkha. Screwing up does not have to be dukkha. Screwing up can be liberation from dukkha. When it's kept right. And so all we'd be willing to say, hey, it's all right that I screwed up. Wow, what a relief it is. Get that off my chest. That in fact, if you um, have screwed up with a good close friend, a companion, a, a roommate, a, um, a, a bedmate. If you do apologize, that's always winds up being warm and gushy. And it's great reward. But if we continue to nigh it and, and run away from it, she'll chase you down. And that's the dukkha is just running and chasing. Your own mind will chase you down. <laughs> yeah, your own mind will chase you down. Exactly. <laughs> no, yeah, totally. Absolutely. <laughs> and so this is, is, so, is so profound, that teaching of the Buddha, that it's okay to screw up because we're not going to learn anything if we, if we don't recognize 
that it's okay to screw up so that we can use it as a, a, a learning tool, a lesson, that anything can become a teacher. I think that I didn't cover that quite well when we were talking to Dan Ingle about uh, about lineage, because that's the part of, of of lineage is that you learn to learn from your mistakes rather than hiding from them. And it takes a song. It takes a kind of a special situation for many to to get, to get that. That's what we're trying to gain now is for people to really screw up and let everybody see that we're screwing up and deal with it so that we can get over it. Totally. I'll tell you, that is difficult for me to do. <laughs> but I, that's why we're here, you know? That's why we're here. Absolutely. That's why we're here, exactly, yeah. This clean house, even if we don't <laughs> like some of the best we find. <laughs> totally. Um, so then... Uh, going back to the question, how does how does fear exactly relate to attachment in terms of, I guess what I would guess is, or what I think is that attachment is- Fear of loss. Yeah, attachment okay. to a certain- that, um, that if we wanted it and didn't get it right away and then wanted it and wanted it and finally we- um, let us say, talked our end of selves into being satisfied that we've got it. The next rule that comes along is, is that you have to take care of it and keep it. Because if you lose it, you'll feel bad, you'll feel sorry. Now, that happens big time with people with an abandonment issue. That's it, that in fact, that we lose something that we thought we had, and it's gone. And being unsure of the future and uncertain, will she come back? That's the whole idea about the abandonment issue. It's not that she went away, it's that she won't come back. That's the fear. The fear is she, she won't come back. And the fear is also, and I can't take care of myself, I shall die without her. That's the underlying instinctual uh, self-preservation, instinctual part of that. That's just so hilarious because there's so many poets that I like that say that exact thing, you know. I mean, it's literally that exact thing. Like, I shall die without her, you know. Like, <laughs> that's so funny because it's like we 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 put it up as like this is like the highest art or whatever. What it, it's just inst it's just instinct, you know. I mean, that's grovelling. <laughs> He's grovelling an instinct. Yeah, totally. God, that's far. It's not the highest of art. We've we've <laughs> tried to raise it at that level and call it pathos, and make big plays out of it that everybody goes to get bad feelings vicariously. It's a whole lot more delicious to go to a horror movie than it is to actually um, spend the night in the cemetery or go to the haunted house and spend the night alone. Nobody wants to do that or spend the night without a light in a cave. Nobody wants to do that. We don't even want to do it out in the woods. We want safety and security and all of that, but then we want to go get horrified vicariously because we know it is safe deep inside. The child, you know, loves to be, to pretend. Now it's a pretend game. The problem is, is that we play that pretend game with our own movies 
quite a lot. And we wind up feeling bad and horrified for the fun of it. Because we get into the habit of doing that. And we want to play the hero, you know, or play, you know, we see his <laughs> character and they're like, ah, oh, yeah, that guy's cool. Ah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you had another kind of question about morality. Can you can you re-express that question? Totally. Because we were talking about two kinds of sati in terms of the unremitting sati that we have continuously to remember to wake up and to remember to have wholesome thought. Mm -hmm. And then the other kind of sati to remember to learning from situations and remembering to avoid situations that we know are going to cause suffering. So mm -hmm. macro sense. Um and I was wondering what the difference between that second form of sati is in terms of the form of, I know that this situation is going to cause suffering for me. How is that different from uh, murder? <laughs> no, not murder. See, you saw where my uh, brain was going uh, already, uh, but morality. Because, <laughs> morality. <laughs> I mean, you know, okay. we can avoid both using the same tools all right well <clears throat> the idea of morality or even <laughs> ethics and you know that they have in various law schools courses on um ethics for lawyers and the funny part about it is, is that the schools that are most famous for having courses on ethics wind up having the lawyers that are the most shysteristic in history Places like Yale and Harvard, they wind up having putting out some really, really strange lawyers. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, Absolutely. so it doesn't always work out the way that the university <laughs> wants it. In, in, in fact, one of the ways of really understanding the laws well is so that you know how to dance with them. Which and and dancing with the laws for in some people's expression is being outright a criminal and good at it in other people's expressions because he can't get caught. He's really good at dancing with the law. He knows it really, really well. He studied it really well. And so now he's one of the biggest crooks in history. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so now we're looking at it. The, re, the, the rationale then is, is that a law is a law or a rule is a rule and everything is going to be that way forever. It's like right or wrong. That's what morality is all about. And ethics is trying to apply that morality to a, an individual situation or uh, let us say to a professional uh, groups of situations. And so... Uh, we try to teach our kids morality, right or wrong, by giving them a whole lot of examples. Because really, if you think about what real morality is, it's got to be um, studied in the sense of recognizing what's right for right now. But we don't teach it that way. We teach it as if, it, if it's right right now, it's right forever, and it has always been right. And if it's wrong right now, it'll be wrong forever. And it's always been wrong. And that we um, get really grandiose about that in the sense of having um, God's law. 
because that makes it really strong and really, really kind of permanent, which means that it's really big in fraction whenever those kind of laws are broken. And then and they've got a few favorites like heresy or uh, um, uh, taking the name of God in vain or whatever like that. Uh, so. These these rules of these laws are how children misunderstand morality. But the teaching of the Buddha has to do not with morals like that. In fact, this is something that is quite interesting how it happened with Buddhism. Because the teaching of the Buddha has to do with um, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, the Dukkha in this moment. And so if we are in a very, very good state of mind, when the mind is noble, it's collected, it's unified, and we don't want anything, then quite naturally we're not going to go do harm to people to try to get things that we don't want. I mean, if we don't want anything, then we're, and we also have the wisdom to understand if I go to try to get that thing, the animal, like, you know, that we're going to have dinner tonight, he may protest if he had a say. Um, so. Being satisfied with little is the quality then of not doing a lot of harm. When we want a whole lot, normally we're going to try to take it from someone if we have uh, win, lose, right, wrong, uh, up, down um, situation. But there is also the possibility of generosity and gratitude, which turns things around to a win-win situation. And that's the way that we could look at it from wisdom perspective is, is that really the, the, we're not following any rules at all. Now, in this uh, Sutta number 117, um, where the Eightfold Noble Path is discussed, it discusses it in the following order. First, it talks about the unification of mind and what this is all about with its supports, requirements, and um, uh, features or outcomes. And so the supports and the features with this unification of mind. All right. Now, this word areas, uh, sama areas, samati has been translated into concentration. And that's where people miss the point. Because really, it's the organization of mind when the mind is noble when it's organized well. Uh, and it's quite satisfied, then it's, uh, uh, morality is not even an issue. But looking at it from the outside, it means that the morality is actually at a very, very high standard because we're not going out doing things that harm people because we want things. Okay, so now that we understand that, we can say that, okay, the Buddha gave several examples of that in this sutta about what is right action, what is right speech, and what is right livelihood. And what is right um, action is to not harm, to not take things that don't, uh, uh, are not given, um, and right speech has to do with not telling direct lies, not gossiping or harming anyone, not uh, uh, being harsh with them or calling them out, uh, 
or um, the one that's, that's the hardest for me at all is to not be frivolous. Uh, but I think frivolous, the kind of uh, the frivolous that they're talking about here has to do with frivolous in the sense of hoodwinking or playing games as opposed to giving very happy frivolous examples of the Dhamma, which is a different kind of frivolity and that kind of frivolity I promote. <laughs> <laughs> now, what has happened with all of this is, is that people have taken these aspects that a noble-minded person would exhibit and turn them into a set of rules called precepts and put them into the poly, and then everybody's got to sit and listen while the monks chant, Panati pata ve ramane sakavadam samati ami, tenadana ve ramane sakavadam samati ami, kame sume chatara ve ramane sakavadam samati ami, mosa wada ve ramane sakavadam samati ami, and then sura meria matya pamatadana ve ramane sakavadam samati ami, and those are the five precepts that are given, and and uh, the the point that the Buddha was making was is that. If someone in their deepest of heart takes 100% enthusiastic refuge in the triple gem of it being in the Sangha with others, promoting the Sangha, being in the Dhamma, living his life as a noble-minded one, then he will naturally keep these precepts. And so the triple gem and these five precepts are deeply wrapped up then with in later times, in the in the, uh, the suttas in the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, as this is the definition of the sotapan, which is not at all the definition of the sotapan. This is kind of the outcome of the sotapan that can be visibly seen, but these are not the qualities of the sotapan or the arrival or anything to do with the sotapan. It's almost like uh, Oh, when you see the bright uh, light of, of of day because everything is glistening and shining, and we say that's the sun. No, that's not the sun. The sun's up in the sky. That's something completely different. You're just looking at the reflection of the sun. So keeping the precepts is a reflection of the sotapan, not the actual qualities of the sotapan himself. Uh, but that's just, let us say, Buddhist science fiction. <laughs> but at the same time, because sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. At the same time, uh, following the precepts helps you keep that noble mind, right? Ah, uh, because what's going on is that you remember the sati. That's the sati. You remember to follow the precepts. Okay. But the question is, do you remember to follow the precepts because they're a set of rules? And if you're going to not follow the rules, you're a bad boy. Mm. Or are you using these as actual guidance for wisdom? Yeah, I think that's the biggest one, because I guess doing that would be like following them just as rules 
would be breaking one of the rules, right? I mean, it's a, <laughs> a, a ritual, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think that's kind of, yeah, I don't know. I've been working with that a lot, I think, in terms of analyzing, okay, what do I see as rules that I you know, have to do in life? And just like kind of be like, it's okay. <laughs> Most of the rules that we follow from childhood, we do it almost unconsciously. We're not even re recognizing that it's a rule. Like the one that I was talking about, the rule is, is that I need a mommy to make me feel good. That's the rule that we carry around, but nobody ever would say that out loud. <laughs> it sounds so ridiculous. <laughs> um, so there's another aspect of it, Dan, and that is, is that it would not be a correct rule for us in this discussion the then to come up with yet a new rule that says that all rules are bad. Mm -hmm. Totally, yeah. Okay. That would be a, uh, a mistake to make that rule. That what we can do instead is recognize that some rules are good, some rules are of value. Some rules have been wisdom that has been expounded to the rule maker, and the rule maker took the wisdom and made a rule out of it. That's say? what we do as children. So the adult may be expounding wisdom, but the child is going to pick it up as a rule. When can we set down the rules and pick up our own wisdom? That's the real lesson. So that we can uh, pick through the rules, see what they are, and pick and choose as to which rules are going to be of use, not only now but into the future, and also which rules are actually causing trouble. That generally, if the rule is made by a government, it causes trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For somebody, whatever regulation is, the reason they have the regulation is because somebody doing something that somebody else don't like, so make a rule, and now we swap that around, and now we just reversed who feels bad and who feels good. We made a rule. <laughs> <laughs> um, but would you say then that like in a very theoretical sense there are moral rules <laughs> um, ah no let's go down to the gut level and, and go back to the point that there are some rules that tend to go along with suffering and no suffering. And you could actually say that if it's a rule, you could still call it noble rule or a precept. Yeah. So we, that's why they call them the precepts, by the way, because that word precept actually has, um, um, look at the word precept, deception, or deception or whatever, but um, uh, that means to see. So precept or preception actually means to see in advance, to see things coming. Yeah. And you can generally see things coming that is going to cause a lot of harm if you kill something. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I actually really like that. I think that kind of like ties in well to like the idea of like physical laws or whatever. And that like a, a physicist isn't going to say that like, um, you know, the, the weak nuclear force or something like that. That's not a law of the universe or whatever. You know, it's just our mm -hmm. best putting forward of what we know now at this point to explain these things or whatever. And, and you can say that in the same way with the moral law of like not killing or whatever. It's like, well, it just seems from our, you know, empirical understanding that that is a damn mm -hmm. good way of avoiding suffering. Right. I don't want to be killed. I would suffer if the judge says, I sentence you to death and tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. you will be hung by the neck until you're dead. And from that moment until now, I'm walking up on the gallows and they're putting that thing around my neck. How noble am I going to be? Can I say goodbye, cruel world? See you later. Catch you on the other side. Hope you guys enjoy the dance. I'm about to give you a performance. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. No, 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 no. Nobody wants to die. Nobody is in that state of being ready to check out just for the show. Nobody wants to do that. No. no. Knowing that we would suffer pain upon death. We recognize that all beings are also like that. Every animal down to the mosquito, down to the ticks, down to the, um, uh, even the bacteria have a self-preservation instinct. I, I was down to the cellular level. Everything has that survival instinct, which means that when upon pain of death, that's the pain. That's the ultimate, the wiping it out. That's why they call it a wipeout. You know, that's the whole idea is that you're, you're gone. And nobody wants to do that because being alive and being conscious is so precious. And we recognize that at a deep level. Why don't we practice Anapanasati and bring it right up to the surface so that we really get a good kick out of the fact that, hey, man, we're alive. We're still alive. We're kicking. <laughs> now we're dancing at the end of the rope. But never mind. I've still got a few seconds left. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Okay, so that's the way that we can begin to understand that everything does not want to die. We should be careful with that. And some societies actually go so far as to only wound the deer with the arrow so that they can apologize to the deer for killing it while they slit its throat. That's a very, very noble way of, of having to do it. Do it very consciously and only take that which you really need. Not like the white men that get their great big uh, uh, buffalo guns out and, and, you know, and just wipe out an entire herd of buffaloes just because they can do it. Yeah, no, there's a lot of dark and history so, there. <laughs> pardon? There's a lot of dark history there in terms of, yeah. Well, that's man's greed. There's a lot of greed in, in, uh, uh, in the human mind. And so this is why we have these laws and rules and, and precepts and all of that kind of stuff is to, is to tell people to stop doing that kind of stuff. Being destructive and all of that. I mean, we, we talk about history and look up to people like Attila the Hun when in fact Attila the Hun was just another butcher. There's so many of them. <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
Um, this, yeah, I don't know. That's a whole thing. I don't know. And so the laws and the rules and, and all of that don't really matter that much. What really matters is how does each one individual person look at their morality in the sense of not as a standard to live up to, but what is the, the easy way out right now? That that's the part that, that actually can be discussed pretty well for people to understand is that's what the teaching of the Buddha is really all about. With all of the religious high flute and language and how respectful we are to people who take on the spiritual life, both in, you know, religions and Buddhism and whatnot like that. So, in fact, the reality is, is that it's just a way to hang out. It's just a way to, I mean, you don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. You just be a holy man. If you know how to be a holy man, you'd be a good holy man. You don't have to do nothing. Yeah. It's taking the easy way out. Become lazy. That's the teaching of the Buddha is to just drop it all. All of those rules about getting all of that stuff and just don't want anything anymore. If you don't want anything, you don't have to do anything to go get anything. You're satisfied. And so if you look at it from the position of that is, is that, hey, man, just hang out. Just, you know, quit your job and quit everything. You know, just let the car go back to the dealer and everything. Just sit down and be happy. <laughs> totally. But I mean, the, the, of course, the end goal, like, is that that is what relieves suffering. Right. I mean, because the Buddha wouldn't recommend that if it if it didn't relieve suffering. Like that was his end goal, right? Well, yeah, that's the whole point. You have to do it right because a lot of people wind up losing their job and losing their house and wind up on the streets as uh, as homeless, and they're really, really suffering <clears throat> because they're still not trying to take the easy way out. They're still suffering for the loss of all the stuff that they thought would make their life easy, and so now their life is really tough. So we're talking about a whole new way of doing it, a new finesse, one that's done with wisdom so that you can find the easy way out, which means to find the least harm, the least duty, the least necessity that needs to be done only down to a bottom point, because there is below that, there is a baseline below that we go to not giving the duty to the Dhamma. There is a certain duty that we have to do to the Dhamma. The easiest one that I can give you is that we have a duty to take the next breath. And if you don't, all of that gleeful consciousness in life is going to go in the next two minutes if you don't take another breath. So there are some bottom lines that we have to do and the Buddha talks about them as the four requisites, just enough housing, just enough food, just enough clothing, just enough medical attention, and you're good to go. If you can find those things wisely, then who needs to work for Wall Street or own Wall Street or own it, <laughs> which many of them want to do? Why would someone want to own it? or want to own the libs. It just doesn't make any sense. Owning things is painful. Totally. But I think, you know, I don't know. I, I agree with it wholeheartedly. Um, I think, you know, you know me to a certain extent now that I kind of have a little bit of a political bent, you know, 
Um, <laughs> and that there is yes, and and you also know that that political bent will cause you more suffering than it does now if you let it run loose. And a whole lot of people are letting that thing run loose in the United States right now. And there's a whole lot of misery, a whole lot of anger, a whole lot of disgust because a whole lot of people are letting their emotions just run wild, just run loose. So it's good that you're picking that up to see that stuff, to recognize that, hey, you don't have to live your life going by the by those rules and those feelings. You can live wisely instead if you remember to do that. Yeah. I don't know anybody who doesn't have a political bent. Yeah. yeah. Humans are bent. You know why you're bent? It's because it's a heavy burden here, Kerry. You're bent over with it. <laughs> totally. But, I mean, what I was going to say is going back to it, it seems... <laughs> If we're going to secure the four requisites, you know, certain things need to be done. <laughs> yes, exactly. That would be then back into that part of it is, is that some rules are useful, valuable, wholesome, and do reduce suffering. And some rules cause suffering. Wisely, you will make that choice. And that's what you're saying. Yes, but, yes, but. And I'm saying, yeah, we've covered that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right. (laughs) I see now. I see it. Uh, Yeah. You got to do a few things. You do need to get those four requisites, but most people don't know when to stop. There is a time to set those rules down and relax and say, wow, what a good job I did there. We don't need to do anything right now. We're finished. I got enough. And we have to do that with everything, even knowledge, even ignorance. The the final fetter is that we only need enough to be happy. We only need enough to enjoy. But the way that our, uh, especially in Western uh, tradition, has been taught is the more you know, the better off you are. And so there's always a grasping and clinging. I mean, how many Domadus have a whole library full of books, depending upon what they can afford? They keep buying books and buying books and buying books, you know. That's the whole idea is, is that, no, you don't need a book. You need to read this book, the one between the ears. That's the book that needs to be read. But we, we cling to all kinds of things thinking that we can't do it ourselves, that we need help from a book or from a guru, where in fact, ultimately, all they can do is help you light your fire. You're going to have to blow on it and get it hot and get it going. Yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, again, I appreciate you. Uh, I'm seeing where to turn at every point, you know. (laughs) (laughs) so anyway back to that word morality is um actually for most people a big stumbling block 
because they set it as a set of standards, often the standards they can't meet, or often the standards they don't want to meet, but in either case, they either feel bad by feeling guilty or feeling rebellious because they've set some standards or some rules or whatever like that, that ultimately were designed around the self-preservation. But then we just take rules and take rules and take rules ignorantly and bring them inside one's own mind because we're picking up stuff wildly, daily, as children. And so the real practice of Anapanasati is also is, is to evaluate, to inspect, to investigate. And the only time that we really need to do that is when we're about to apply one of these rules. We say, wait a minute, <laughs> before we actually push that button, let's look at it a little bit. But we can't look at it with a critical mind, right? That's that's because, you that, know, that is a toy, right? Rather than a should, right? We have to come out of it. That's the looking at it. We have because the critical mind is not looking at it. The critical mind is trying to apply it or trying to figure out how to apply it rather than uh, looking at it as a new toy to play with in the moment. Yeah. And often that has to do when we are catching ourselves in wrongdoing because the critical mind and the rules, oh, you're not, you're not following the rules, you've made a mistake. Wait a minute, no, I didn't make a mistake, I'm okay, I'm okay. And so we go into a state of denial and all of that kind of stuff which means that we continue to make that same mistake. But when you say, dang, ouch, that hurts, what is that? Oh, it's a splinter, let me get that splinter out. It's a whole lot different, it's all oh, my finger doesn't hurt, leave my finger alone. No, you can't look at my finger, mommy, I won't let you. <laughs> and so if we are willing to look at our own um, anger, frustration, uh, doubts, worries, you know, what we would call rounding up the usual suspects of the hindrances. <laughs> the usual suspect of the hindrances are always there. Are we going to see them as they really are and play with them as toys? Are we going to deny? And that's the first job of the meditator right from the get-go is never mind all of that stuff. Come back and be joyful. No, I want to go off and feel bad. I want to go think about that guy who done me wrong. I want to go finish that argument with my sister. You know, all of those kind of thoughts. It's just those hindrances. And basically trying to protect the self. That's why we're following the rules is for self-protection. So to end this off, we can now go back to the issue of fear because it's the fear that is the self-preservation instinct that everything winds up being a matter of life or death rather than a matter of, oh, well, I can handle this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and And... So when we are in that uh, position of fear, that we can actually at that point wake up to the fear, recognize we're fear, and then go into the nurturing to talk ourselves out of the fear 
by joyfully, gleefully talking about the fact that you're actually safe. You know, the dog is asleep. She's not biting my ankle. The tick that's crawling up my leg, I can feel that and pick it off. I don't have to be afraid of the tick. I could just remove it because I can feel them. And if it does bite me, I'll survive that too. I can pick the tick off after it bites, okay? So this is the whole idea that we have to get uh, into talking ourselves out of the fear. There's no laptops. There's no alligators. The cops are not coming to the door. Yes, you will pass the medical exam. You don't have to worry right now. You know, just everything's going to be okay. And we need to keep reassuring ourselves of that. And that's especially true if we have any shade of an abandonment issue. That we don't, we need something or we won't survive. But when we wisely say, oh, the only thing that I actually need is a little bit of food, a little bit of shelter, a little bit of breathing, a little, you know, a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of transportation. But that's about it. A little bit of medical attention. In fact, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was the one who added those extras besides the four ingredients that the Buddha had in his day. The Buddha didn't actually list it because he had his feet. He had all the transportation that he needed. And that he recommended that they don't go to shows. That in fact, that's part of the uh, the precept of Nacha Gita Watida Visukadasana Vairamani Sakavanam Samatiami. That's one of the precepts up there for the higher precepts. And that Nacha is dancing, Gita is singing. But we're not talking about Nacha and Gita just as things. They're talking about the Nacha Gita Vatida, which means entertainment shows. Because it would not be polite for the monks to go and sit in the audience while everybody is sitting there with the monks, not paying attention to the monks, but paying attention to the show. Okay. Um, uh, a clear example of that, as best I can come up with, is imagine that the Pope himself is going to the Grand Opera, the opening night of the Grand Opera. Okay, what's the Pope doing there? And is he not giving up his power because people are not going to be paying attention and watching to him anymore? They're not going to be, I mean, they'll do that for the first couple of minutes, like throwing the baseball out when the president throws the baseball out. But they're not there for the base for the for the president to throw the baseball out. They're not there for the Pope to sit in the uh, um, uh, in pomp and circumstance in the, uh, the booth. They're there for the show. OK, that's why the monks don't go to those kind of shows. But in Western Buddhism, we have bought the whole rule bag and said, ah, oh, but not sure that means you can't dance at all. Uh, Gita means you can't sing, you can't have any music. No dancing, no music at all. I've heard Buddhists like that, you know. In fact, I gave up the guitar, almost ritualized giving up the guitar in, in 1983 and haven't played the guitar since then because of that stupid rule that didn't exist, <laughs> except in the minds of a bunch of Buddhists who think that there's rules against it. In fact, the word Gita is used in the Pali in a different way. 
One of them is actually the Tara Gita is the songs or the poems of the monks. And the Tara Gita is the songs of the bhikkhunis or the poems in verse. And so uh, saying things in, in poetically, saying things in verse, saying things over and over again with rhyme and rhythm and meter and that kind of stuff is kind of music. And um, listening to songs that have um, wholesome things to them, I think that that's actually part of the issue is, is that uh, the Buddha was warning about that it's the unwholesome, that it's not all music. So that's, that's an example right there of a rule or a law where people take it and run to the, an extreme with it, where in fact that was not the intention of the wisdom in the first place. Martin Luther, the guy who made the whole Protestant revolution and all that, had a really funny quote that you might have heard because um, he was really big into music. Uh, he asked, why must the devil have all the good tunes? <laughs> you know, because it's like, and, you know, and... I think he said that humorously and sarcastically, and you, I think, so too, because you laughed after he said it. <laughs> and he wasn't serious at all with that. No, I mean... But we can also see why he would say that kind of thing, because look at the kind of what you would call church music or churchy music that has to do with death and dying, which religions are all about in many cases anyway. And so you'll have like a, a mass in B minor. Box, I mean, it's, it's actually beautiful, but it's also supremely ugly. <laughs> intentionally you know and so that's why uh luther would say uh that about church music and also it, uh it gets kind of a sing-songy but um there's also a lot of joyful music within religion well a lot of it i think Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, and my Lord's right around here someplace. <laughs> oh, there he is. Yeah, he's yeah, gosh, he's all over. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of it, because it was funny, like, after Luther said that, like, they started taking, like, folk tunes or whatever, just removing the lyrics and replacing with, like, you know, removing, like, I love my girl, she's amazing, you know, we get it down or whatever, to, like, praise the Lord, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's really hilarious, you know, that they, and I mean, Well, like, they do that in evangelical, too. I mean, they even have a dance band up on the stage. Where all of these old pipe organs that Bach was playing, you know, that was actually, um, in a way, um, uh, the age of the musical instruments or the error of those kind of... Uh, uh, music. I don't think anybody is in business of building actual pipe organs anymore. I think they've they've lost that art. And I'm talking about tracker, you know, where you actually push this key down on the keyboard with various levels of keyboard that has a little stick in there that goes and pulls a little valve so that the guy who's turning the crank and making the bellows work will push the air into that particular pipe. Right, that's a real organ, <laughs> and they okay. don't make them anymore. They make them electronic now. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I mean the technology is, is absolutely nuts. Yeah, so nuts. But yeah, I don't know. 
And and you could hear that clicking and clacking and the sound of the organ. I mean, it's got its own, and they're they're hard to tune and all kinds of stuff like that. And so they wind up in the churches sounding really weird, especially as they get old, you know, a couple of hundred years. <laughs> I don't think I've ever, I must have heard a live organ at some point. I can't think of one recently, though. I'd like to. But yeah, I don't know. I mean... I think Wurlitzer stopped making real organs back in the 1930s. Yeah, totally. Well, it's like you said, it's not very. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the whole musical instrument scene has has changed over time. Uh, better tuning. Um, uh, a, a lot of stuff we don't need to get get into. But <clears throat> you could also then think of that the religious music of his day was the retrograde or the older stuff, and that he was actually uh, liking the more modern music yeah. that is of, of today, which, you know, that that's just natural. But there is actually quite a lot of church music that's, uh, that's quite, quite gorgeous, in fact, beautiful. Ava Maria for one. That, I mean, you can just, oh, holy night, just get some goosebumps going. You know, there's <laughs> some really beautiful, beautiful church music. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's like, I don't know, those instruments that they use and stuff, like, I mean, they were pretty, you know, weird and all that. But at the same time, it's hard to say that they've gotten... Well, except for the tuning issues, it's hard to say that they've gotten better, you know, like mm -hmm. a lot of them were just really different, like using the gut strings or whatever, you know, on a cello or whatever, like, I don't know, maybe, I mean, like, that's just a different, or like, you know, they're both, like, there used to be way more curves and all this sort of thing, you know, so, I don't know. But, it, um, going back to what we were saying about music before, it's like, it is such a, I don't know, fundamental part of us, you know, like, I mean, it's birds do it, you know, like birds <laughs> thing, you know. Um, I saw a title to a book that I thought was pretty funny as well um, that you might like. Uh, I didn't read it. I didn't pick it up. But I like the title. It's, it was called um, Is Language a Music? Both both of those work together in reverse order is music language. Yeah. Yes, certainly. And when you got that over with, then we can go, is language itself music? The answer to that is, is that language can be both music and noise. That mm. in fact, what you could say then is that the noble winds up his language is much more musical in quality that he, in fact, will search while he's speaking for a rhyme here and there just to surprise himself and everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the rhythm and going over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. That's the noble way of, of speaking uh, to where uh, normal speech is likely to go off onto any tangent anywhere moving from subject to subject without them having tied back together. So the music then will, in a way, be the coda hmm. or um, the chorus. Hmm. 
Okay, there's something that you do uh, in the beginning and then in the middle and then the end. Um, there is actually, you probably heard this um, about speech making, that to give a speech, you have to tell the audience what you're going to tell them. Then you spend a great deal of detail telling them all about it in the middle, and that's the larger part of it. And in the end, you go back and you sum it up and tell them what you told them. Yeah, no, that's that's philosophy. That's musical. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> it's both philosophy when it's done correctly is yeah. good philosophy and is also musical. That's the co in fact most pieces of music have that part of, built into that piece of music. Totally. Is uh, that repetitive part and going over it and over it again? But but the best is when you think that it's it's not going to come back, right? And that it's like the piece is over and it's like, oh wait, you know. But then it then it comes back, you know, and you're like, oh my <laughs> god, like um, like that always happens with you know um, the flower duet. Da 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 Yes. Another one that's very much like that one is um, the song that never ends. <laughs> you know? Maybe. The song that never ends. Uh, gosh, how, did it, how does it go? It goes on and on and on, my friends. And then they just keep singing the same thing over and over again. I mean, it's got no end to it intentionally. It's a song that never ends. That's damn funny. But with but with the flower duet, it's like it goes away completely, and then like it's just so quiet at the end, and they they just uh -huh. do it one last time, you know. It's like and oh. then do it again, <laughs> and do it again. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that whole repetitive quality then is the art of Anapanasati, or the art of then the um uh, the sati itself is to remember to do it again. And to remember to do it again and remember to do it again. That's the, the repetitive quality of it. That's what actually the practice becomes music. Totally. I think <laughs> what can unconsciously trick me is that like, well, I was doing Anapanasati and now I'm here or whatever, you know. But it's like, that's not the Anapanasati's fault. You got to keep doing it. You know? <laughs> like, just because you're here after doing it, you know, it was a while afterwards, you know, like, yeah. So it's, it's continuous. Yeah. <laughs> because it's the same thing. It's like, you know, like we were talking about before, like no one's perfect. We make mistakes, you know, because it's like, that's just perfection. is just not of this world, you know, like it's just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so part of the music is, um, let us say, in a dancing, joyful way, you pick yourself up. I like that idea. You know, you just get right up. But in fact, part of that whole uh, art of picking oneself up is, is that we can actually begin to pick ourselves up as we're falling, like mm -hmm. stumble, but not actually fall. That's a picking ourselves up really early. We don't have to land with our face in the mud before we start picking ourselves up, that we can catch ourselves as we're stumbling or as we're falling, if we remember to. And so we can apply that idea then also with, with the mind, is that we can, in fact, see that we're stumbling right now, 
there's, there's a hindrance just arrived. <laughs> you know, don't trip over and fall and land in the mud. <laughs> Step out of the way. And and we can do that at stepping out of the way is then part of the boogieing or part of the dance. Everything, I mean, it really is musical. That's really interesting that uh, Western Buddhism is in particular um, is anti-music in all respects to where the Asians have gotten over that long ago. They've got, you know, flute music. Uh, there's drawings actually of uh, uh, of. I won't go into Emmanuel uh, right now, um, but he was an artist, and there's a lot of art after he died was uh, actually already left at Watso and Mok. And so they built a spiritual theater around him, and one of the pieces of art, big uh, line art drawing, Zen style, uh, is that the sound of the flute returns to the forest. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, the bamboo came out of the forest. It was made into a flute, and now the musician is playing the flute, and the music returns to the forest. Always return the music. Keep giving it back. <laughs> Absolutely, because, like, you know, we've been having a lot of wind lately or whatever, and it's like it's whistling, you know? It's literally uh -huh. just... The world is singing to you, you know, like uh huh. The world is singing exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, the birds are singing. Everything is singing. Yeah. Everything is dancing. The Hindus talk about it in the in the form of lila, mm -hmm. or a dance. The whole world is just dancing. And if we can see it as a dance, then we join the show in that regard. Just begin to dance along with it. Yeah rather than fighting against it, which is the normal way that humans do it. Something went wrong in our culture many, many, many centuries ago. <laughs> we started fighting with each other and warring with each other and killing each other off. And we have to stop. <laughs> well, it's like we're saying, you know, Pretty imperfect. Well, that's part of the rules that we're keeping. That's built into the rule system. Yeah. Rather than kindness. So that's another example right there. Kindness or even metta can be thought of as a rule or friendliness. Let's have some good rules. Those uh, kind of rules or precepts mm. that uh, are of great value so that we hold those and remember to practice and, and um, continue to be friendly rather than being fearful. If we're fearful, we're already in dukkha and more than likely we're going to continue in dukkha or spread it around to others. Blame him for my problems. Here, have a big teaspoon full of dukkha. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I've got so much of it, I got to unload it on somebody. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, um, that seems kind of like an implicit rule of, of Buddhism uh, is that we have to we have to approach things with an awakened mind and remember to 
having an open mind in order to approach things. Yeah, but when we take it as a precept or as, hey, it's a really good idea, mm. yeah, then it's then it's useful. Then it's then it's a toy to play with. Then mm. it's a value. But when we say, oh, you've got to do it, mm-hmm. then every time we fail at it, mm-hmm. we're not willing to look at it. And because we're not willing to look at it, because we're denying our failure, we stay stuck. And we're in the rules, making it a rule and never being able to follow, or let us say not never being able to, but rather occasionally breaking that rule and feeling bad again. And we're going to unconsciously. And they're not looking at the rule, and so we don't learn anything from it, so we're doomed to break it again. History repeats itself unless you're looking at what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's samsara, right? <laughs> That's the samsara is keep doing the same thing over and over again, thinking we're going to get new results. No, wait a minute. That's insanity. Samsara <laughs> is just doing things over and over again without even looking at the results. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think insanity in this case is actually superior <laughs> in the way that most people operate. <laughs> well, is but Samsara works in the wider sense, right? In terms of like, I mean, it's it's just everything that is. Any right? and everything that happens happens in cycles. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the only way that it can happen is in cycles. It's just over and over again. Everything is like that. Name me something that happens just one time. And I'm not talking about failed cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, totally. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, everything's in cycles over and over again. And, and our, the, the music of life, so that your life becomes music, is when we get in tune and get in rhythm and enjoy the dance. which often has to do with nothing but just enjoying the show. Because who's the dancer? There's no dancer there. We're just watching what's happening. So anyway, this has been a really delightful conversation. We've gone (laughs) off into um, uh, several deeper aspects of things, and I really appreciate your... um, hanging in there with it well it's it's a yeah it's a lot <laughs> um <laughs> but it i'm just really curious now um as for fitting things together you know and seeing the unity you know of uh of the buddhist system you know to try to like bring things together because i feel like i i understand like individual points but I really want to be able to like connect things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ways that you can do that is by realizing that, hey, man, they're already all connected. Yeah, totally. No, absolutely. You don't have to do the connection. 
they're already connected. All you have yeah. to do is just see those connections to, you know, check out those dots, you know, <laughs> put the line between them because the line, the dots are already in place. And then it can be fun. If you think you got to put the thing together yourself, that sounds like a whole lot of work. <laughs> Getting back to that issue of that, in fact, the Buddha's method is um, taking the easy way out. Enlightenment is to lighten your load. There was once a book written many, many years ago. I've got a copy of it someplace in my digital library. The name of it is The Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment. And now I realize, no, the lazy man doesn't need a guide to enlightenment. He's already enlightened. <laughs> I do think that that is one thing that I've really come to understand is that like, you know, resisting certain things or whatever, um, it's not more difficult once you realize, like, the dukkha that they create, you know, it actually makes for a way easier life. <laughs> it's way easier, you know, people look at monks and they're like, oh, how do they do it or whatever, but it's like... <laughs> no, they've got the easy way out. <laughs> how do they do it? What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. Yeah, no, it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's the secret it's not a dirty secret it's a very lily white secret and everybody especially those that are very close to the monks know it that the job of the monk is to hang out and when people come they hang out with the people and when the people go they hang out without the people all of that chanting and everything is done is because the people expect it for some reason <laughs> uh. Yeah, well, the chanting's not a problem either. Just go <laughs> along with it. <laughs> Pick it up. There's no hurry. <laughs> <laughs> and so the the life really gets, you know, quite nice, quite easy. And that's the whole point of the teaching of the Buddha is, is that look at all the people running around, scurrying around, trying to get a gross domestic product. Bhutan's the only country in the world, a Buddhist country, that has a gross happiness product rather than a gross domestic product. <sighs> Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If the government really cared about let's make everybody happy rather than let's make everybody filthy and rich, maybe. Just filthy, basically. <laughs> you got to get them angry to get them to vote. Afraid. Got to get them really afraid. Get them angry, you know, get them upset, get them uptight, and then they'll go vote. Otherwise, why bother? <laughs> so my point is, yeah, if they can't get me angry, why bother? <laughs> Not my problem. <laughs> They're all corrupt anyway. They wouldn't be politicians if they weren't corrupt. <laughs> well, I think all people are, you know. <laughs> yeah, everybody's corrupt. In fact, that that old um, ultimately ultimate, you know, power corrupts, and ultimate power ultimately corrupts. 
Well, if that's true, then any time we get a little bit of power, we get a little bit corrupt. And when we're angry, what are we doing? We're trying to get power. That's what anger is all about, is trying to manifest power. That's what bullies do. They, they they want power. They want their way, you know, and that power is corrupting. If not the corruption itself. Because any time that someone is acting with that kind of power around us, we feel afraid. That's what the intention of exhibiting that power. With the idea that that power, uh, that uh, fear is immediately transformed into yet more angry, and now you've got two people on fire, that kind of fire. So that's what power is all about. So when we recognize, hey man, I don't need any power. I can get along. I can survive without it. I can survive without all the knowledge. I can survive without all the power. I got everything I need. I can just sit back and watch everybody else do their power trips instead. Because I can't stop them. <laughs> They're too powerful. <laughs> <laughs> But I can't stand aside and let all of that power just wish on by. That's the easy way out. Again, let's go the lazy way. Let's take the easy way out. So being a lazy man is the guide to enlightenment. All we have to do is remember it's not my problem. <laughs> This is such excellent advice from the Buddha that the whole idea is just not my word. Take the easy way out. Don't have any problems. You picked it up, set it down. <laughs> Does it belong to you? And yeah. we can go that even when the girl leaves, we pick up the problem. That, oh, she's left me and I need her. But we can set it down and say, no, I don't need her. I can have fond memories and thoughts of her and just enjoy the fact that she's gone now. Then I can enjoy the fact when she comes back. Yeah. I don't yeah, have yeah. to feel abandoned. It's just instinct. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's finish off now. I think that we've kind of covered this pretty well. Exactly. It's been delightful. Absolutely. Our job is done here. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, can, I can sit on my bag of cotton and rest. <laughs> All right. Do we see you later? All right. See you later. I appreciate really it immensely, of so course, much. as always. Thank you. Yes, buddy. You know, go enjoy your break. <laughs> I'm doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. See you later. <laughs>